Shalom. This is Reverend John Faraday again. Welcome to session six of our Torah study called The Gospel According to Moses. And in this session, in session six, we'll take a look at a couple of different things like, one, can you prove that God exists? Is there any way that you can use the Bible to actually do that? We'll take a look at that. Then we'll also continue with the idea that God created a polemic or God uses the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, as a polemic against Egypt. A polemic is a truth claim, a statement or a series of statements that are diametrically opposed to a competitive worldview, a competitive set of truth claims. So therefore, the worldview of the Egyptians that declares man as God and that man can solve all his problems, God creates a polemic in the Torah that is against this. And we're going to be taking a look at that. Matter of fact, in Leviticus 18, 1 through 5, I really believe that God really says he's going to create a polemic. Let's take a look at this. In Leviticus 18, 1 through 5, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them, I am the Lord. So it's almost as if God is actually saying that indeed his judgments, his commands, his instruction, and that's what Torah means, is going to help the Hebrews understand how to break away from Egypt. Almost a polemic in a sense. And we'll take a look at this in a deeper way in this lesson six. So we continue from Lesson 5, and I'm about to go into the JPS Torah commentary to take a look at commentary based upon uh, some significant key verses. So let's go there now, and you'll hear me say, let's go into the commentary and see what they have to say. Shalom. we start reading that the traditional English translation reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The rendering construes the verse as an independent sentence complete in itself, a solemn declaration that serves as an epitomizing caption to the entire narrative. It takes the initial word Bereshit to mean at the beginning of time, and thus makes a momentous assertion about the nature of God, that he is wholly outside of time. He's holy outside of time. But see, in the beginning, Amun-Ra was in time. He was in the chaos. He wasn't outside of time. This is astounding. Just as he is outside of space, he's outside of space. He can't dwell in the heavens because he creates them. He's beyond the heavens. 
in the heavens beyond the heavens, if you want to call them. Just as he is outside space, both of which he proceeds to create. In other words, for the first time in the religious history of the Near East, see again, this is the Near East. This is 3,500 years ago. And all of a sudden, you're a pagan in the Hittite culture, and you're hearing this. Okay, and for the first time in religious history, God is conceived as being entirely free of temporal or spatial dimensions. What did the gods look like? What did the gods do in pagan cultures? They had statues and temples. God said, what temple can you, what house can you build for me? Don't you dare build a statue to me. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. The term for God used here, oh, and here's one, the comment that I wanted. Unlike pagan cosmologies, unlike pagan cosmogenies, Genesis exhibits no interest in the question of God's origins. All the pagan cultures were interested in how did Marduk come from? Where did he come from? Where did the Egyptian gods come from? God is saying, um, I am. I remember this. One of my teachers told me this story. And the story was, he attended the yeshiva, I believe in New York City, and that is the college, the university, the school, where men become rabbis. So they're going to have rabbinical training. And he was there. He's a Christian. He was allowed to come into the class. So that was really fascinating. And he was in sandals and dockers. Remember dockers? Okay. Um, tan, a golf shirt. Okay. Um, and everybody else, they were orthodox. So they were all dressed in black. They all had black hats. They held the peel, everything, and they had the tzitzit. And he said it, the room was black except for him. Okay, he had golf shirt on, tan slacks, you know, and sandals. So the professor comes in, and this was the class on Genesis. And so the professor sat down and um, greeted the class, and he said, somebody, please, uh, could you read Genesis chapter 1 for me, please? Well, everybody in that audience, every one of those students had the Torah memorized. How much of the Bible do you have memorized? You have to understand, the Jewish people have such a dedication to God's Word. Many of them have much of it memorized, especially the devout ones. They had it memorized. So, I mean, 300 hands go up. Now, my teacher did not raise his hand, because he had John 3.16 and the Lord's Prayer memorized. That's it. And Psalm 23, sort of. Okay, these guys had five books of the Bible memorized in Hebrew and probably in French and in English. So they raise their hand. He picks a guy right in the front row. So the young man gets up and he says, in the beginning, God. Now, right at that point, the professor, I mean, with a really powerful voice says, stop. And I mean, the young man who's in the yeshiva, I think nearly had a heart attack. Okay, because this guy really yelled. And the professor says, start again. Okay. <sighs> Bereshit, Elohim, I mean, he goes, he starts doing it again. In the beginning, God created. Stop! Start again! Okay, I, this young man is really, doesn't know what to do. He starts reading again. In the beginning, God. Stop! There is silence in the room. And he said, if there's any of you who do not believe that, get out. 
He said, oh, nobody's leaving? Good, let's start. <laughs> the Bible does not prove that God exists. It doesn't care. It's not trying to show you that God exists. God exists, period. You believe it? Fine. You don't? Leave the room. Jewish people assume God exists, and they don't argue it. Christians, on the other hand, in their philosophy classes, they start dealing with, does God exist? Are you kidding? What does the Bible say? Fascinating. Now, we see this polemic theology. One of the things about the polemic theology is this. Let me read this. Let me go into Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 again, I'm in verse 21. This often bothered me, and I never asked any questions until I started, until I started to learn how to ask questions. Genesis 1, verse 21. And God created the great sea serpents. Stop. I'm done. That's what it says. Sea serpents. Those are mythological beasts. They're dragons. Those are not dinosaurs. They're sea serpents. The Hebrew word is tanim. Tanim. The, uh, the uh, Strong's number is H8577. Now, I'll give me some verses. We're not going to look them up. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 9, the word tanim is used. Exodus chapter 7, verse 9, and it's translated as serpent. This is also the translation in Deuteronomy 32.33. It's also the translation in Psalms 91.13. And in Jeremiah 51.34, it's translated as a dragon. You guys, you can't dismiss this. In the Chumash, and that is the Orthodox commentary on the Torah, I read that and blessed the rabbis. They would say, oh, it's a big fish. Uh, it doesn't say big fish. It says a great sea serpent. Now, what's fascinating is when you go into Revelation 22, the one I'm looking for is this. He's the great red serpent, Satan. Okay? So I can't remember what verse that was. I thought I had it correct. It's incorrect here. The Hebrew, the Greek word there in the, in the book of Revelation is drakon. Dracon in the Middle Ages was used to describe dragons, a great serpent, okay? Dracon is the Greek word that's used to translate tanim in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the translation of the Hebrew Bible, okay, to Greek. We call it the Septuagint or the Pentateuch, okay? So therefore, tanim, the Hebrew, is translated as dracon, and that's the word that's used in Revelation for, for Satan. Now, what's fascinating is this. Is this polemic theology? I had somebody ask me a fascinating question today. And the question is related to, John, based upon what you're teaching about polemic theology, and this is in another class, the one I'm teaching in Apple Valley and the one I'm teaching here on Mondays. He said, do you believe that the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is true? Wow. You want to know what the answer is? Mostly. 
God doesn't care about the order because this is not a book of science. We talked about that last week. If it's a book of science, you'd have all sorts of scientific stuff in there. Big bang, how big the explosion was and how it went this way and that way. Dinosaurs would be in there, all sorts of things. God doesn't care about that. He's saying, go read a science book. Yes, I made dinosaurs. Fossils are not evil. Okay? Evolution does not exist. Go into the science. This is not a science book. However, my belief is he's giving you an outline. That's my belief. Okay? So with regards to a structure... We can say, yeah, this is pretty reliable. This is probably more or less how it went. But God has a different purpose here. You guys want him to say, this is the creation account. And he did it in seven 24-hour periods. We dealt with that last week. However, let's deal with this. You're a Hebrew. You're living 3,500 years ago. You're there on the plains of Moab. And all of a sudden, Moses reads this for the first time. And it just so happens that we don't understand the ancient Near East cultures. Because when we go into the ancient Near East culture, let me go into the JPS Torah commentary here on um, page 10. Listen to this. So, it is Tanim. Oh, I'm sorry, I said Tanim, it's Tanin, Tanin, T-A-N. N-I-N, Tanin. This specification expresses an un... Listen to this. This is in the JPS Torah commentary. And I didn't even realize the word was in here. This specification about gray sea monsters, gray sea serpents, expresses an unspoken anti-pagan polemic. This is a Jewish source. Hebrew Tanin appears in Canaanite myths. Where were they going? Where were these people going? Canaan. And in the Canaanite myths, also from Ugarit, together with the Leviathan, as the name of a primeval dragon god who assisted Yam, the sea, in a battle against their ultimate god, Baal. The Canaanites said the great sea serpent is an enemy of our god, Baal. And what does our god say? I created him. You're coming in to be a witness to the Canaanites and saying, those great sea serpents, yes, they're enemies. We have to sacrifice to Baal to protect Baal so that he is not attacked by the great sea serpents. Uh, sorry, pal, our god made him. Whoop! A polemic. I'm not trying to say that Genesis chapter 1 is 100% polemic. It's not. It has different purposes. Okay? But if you don't know the ancient Near East cultures, we can't see the polemics that they understood. Now, another purpose for this class is the fact that Torah is for now. This is for us today. Why? Because nothing's changed. Nothing. So, you want to take the book of Genesis 
and come up to a person like this and say, let me teach you about how God created everything. Rather than a polemic that God created nature, God created the plants, the trees, the animals. God is above nature. Why? Because there is an actress, Oscar winning, I will not mention her name, but I will email this information to you. She's facing a big backlash after appearing recently, uh, suggesting that the deadly hurricanes that hit the U.S. are Mother Nature's rage against our president and his supporters. This actress insinuated that the deadly hurricanes were inflicted upon the United States because climate change denying voters chose our president. Her quote, you know you're watching these hurricanes now, and it's really hard, especially while promoting this movie, not to feel mother's rage and wrath, she stated. Mother. The movie is called Mother, and it's out in the theaters now. Totally pagan, totally anti-Christian, totally anti-God. What's changed? Another thing, though, is this. I couldn't believe this when I heard it. There's a professor, if I recall, um, she is an art professor, and it's time to start getting involved in eco-sex. Eco-sex. You really have to get down and dirty, and they're promoting, they have a group, they are on the internet, to have sex with the earth. Because the earth is your lover. You can sensually roll in the mud, make passionate love to a hulking tree, and even pursue a long-term romantic relationship with the ocean. It's all part of eco-sex trend exploding on Google searches in the last year. Thanks in part to an art professor, I won't mention her name, who teaches at a university in the state of uh, <clears throat> California. The movement involves a combination of art, sex, and environmentalism. There was a couple who said that we're involved in this, and their quote is, we make love with the earth, we are aquophiles, terophiles, pyrophiles, and aerophiles. We shamelessly hug trees, massage the earth with our feet, and talk erotically to plants. We are skinny dippers, sun worshipers, and stargazers. We caress rocks, are pleasured by waterfalls, and admire the earth's curves often. We make love with the earth through our senses. We celebrate our east spots. We are very dirty. My suggestion to you is when you treat this book as a science book, these two women, one an actress and one a professor, were trained in the wrong view of the Bible. There's no meaning for them. Fascinating. So, for God, it seems what he's trying to do for his people. The Hebrews, as I told you, did not understand Israel. Many of them didn't understand the Canaanite culture because they're not trained. They weren't schooled. Moses was. Maybe a few others were. See, so you have to, we almost get the impression, well, those Hebrews, they know everything. No, they don't. They were slaves. They weren't educated for hundreds of years. So the question is, what did they hear? What did they understand? And if I, you remember, one of the purposes is Deuteronomy 
In Deuteronomy 4.8, we won't quote it right now, but you can go there and basically God set the Torah before Israel. God set the Torah before them, not you. So what did they hear? Then they've never been to Israel. They don't even know, well, they know what the Torah is now, okay, at that time, but the thing is how to practice it and that type of stuff. And we're dealing probably with the 15th century B.C. Now, there is the possibility that the Hebrews... Now, I'm going to use this word, but I'm going to give you some other synonyms along with it. I have suggested in other classes and in other te uh, teachings that the Hebrews possibly assimilated into the Egyptian culture. I don't think assimilation is the word. The reason being is a, we, want, um, we want people who are immigrants to the United States to assimilate into the culture, all right? Assimilate, that means they're going to be accepted, they can vote, and that type of stuff. They're part of us, okay? They're part of the United States. We consider them United States citizens, etc. The Hebrews could never be that in Egypt. They could never be full-blown Egyptian citizens, only for one simple reason, that many of them were shepherds and they were hated by the Egyptians. They were just considered uh, an abomination. So assimilation is probably the incorrect word. But when I take a look at synonyms for it, did the Hebrews absorb the Egyptian culture, even though they were separated? Did they conform to perhaps worshiping the Egyptian gods, to adjust, to become part of? Let's take a look at Genesis 47, verse 27. And in Genesis 47, 27, we're reading, uh, let me read the, uh, it says, dwelt and Israel in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions. Okay, that's the English translation of the following Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is ve'i achatsu, ve'i achatsu. When you go into Gesenius and you study this word itself, it can mean have possessions, take uh, and buy things and, and own land, but it also means taking part in the culture. So when we take a look at this, these, the Hebrews are in the land uh, of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they took part in the culture and grew therein and multiplied. So not only did they buy land and houses, but there's the possibility that they actually participated into the culture. Now, in Exodus 1.7, let me go to Exodus 1.7, and I'm going to go back to the New American Standard. And in Exodus 1.7 it says, But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mightily, so the land was filled with them. The land was filled with them. Probably not Goshen. The implication here is probably all Egypt all 400 miles up and down the Nile. We think they were just in Goshen? Are you kidding? This implies that they were all over the place, buying into the culture. Now we go to Joshua 24, and this kind of nails it. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Oh. 
No. They bought into the culture. Assimilation, probably not. Okay, they probably didn't dress as... Maybe in the early stages they did. I don't know. But certainly they were adjusting and adapting. Now, one of my teachers, who I enjoy very much, is Ray Vanderland. And he was thinking, and he said, you know, God has got to get them out of this place. How do you get the Hebrews out of Egypt? Do you understand they're slaves? And life was pretty tough. But they had three squares a day. They had homes. It was tough. How do you get them to leave and go into the wilderness where there's no water, there's snakes, it's hot, and there's scorpions, and follow God? How do you do that? He suggests that we take a look at Ezekiel chapter 20. In Ezekiel chapter 20, in verse 7 through 10, we read. Now think about this. Ray is suggesting it could very well be that God, through Ezekiel, is trying to tell us he had to give them a reason to leave. So in 27 we read, I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Stop. That verse suggests like, okay, Jacob, you're going to stay here. Joseph, you're going to stay here. Uh, Jacob dies, I know, and we'll take him and bury him. But Joseph, you're still here. Okay, listen. What I want you to do is I don't want you to get involved with the idols of Egypt. It's almost like God is talking to Joseph and then the descendants for those first 10, 15, 20, 30 years, okay, while they're there. Verse 8, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes. We're in Egypt. This is Egypt. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them. I've got to do something to put a stop to this. I've got to set up a reason for them to leave. I want it to be hard on them, so hard that they're going to say, we've got to get out of here, we need a redeemer, somebody help us. So to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. How do you take all those people from Egypt into the wilderness? Because is it possible? I'm not trying to say he did. I do never want to put words in the Bible's mouth. It seems to suggest the possibility that God is the one that brought Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, and brought all this upon the Hebrews because they were worshiping pagan gods. And on top of that, it was a good reason for to get them out. Possibly. It is an interesting thought. So, he makes Egypt distasteful to them, and he can take them out before the nations. And so, all of a sudden, we come up with Finally, the covenant, and this, this implies the covenant with Abraham. God is not going to forget his covenant. But what is he going to do to get these people out of there? I'll show them how to get out of there. I'll put some wrath on them that they've never seen before. And by the way, another reason why I think they actually um, adjusted, uh, absorbed the Egyptian culture 
is the following, and that is Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. And it came about in the course of the many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out to who? To God. No, it doesn't say that. But God heard the cry. It says they cried out to who? Now, to show you the difference, I'm going to go to Exodus 14.10. In Exodus 14.10, you remember the Egyptian chariots are getting close. They're trapped at the Red Sea. And we read this. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. And the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's done on purpose. In the first case, they cried out to who? God is going to honor the covenant of Abraham. Are you with me? He hears the descendants of Abraham. He's going to do that. He's not going to back away. But then later on, they get to know him. These are after the plagues. And they cried out to who? The Lord. So to end off with the following, and maybe to suggest to you why God was so upset with them. Deuteronomy 32, 17. In Deuteronomy 32, 17, his people, after all those years, forgot him. And God was saying through Moses, they sacrificed to demons who were not God. The Egyptians and their marvelous culture and all their gods, what is God saying about the system? It is a system of the worship of demons. So that ends session six, and we'll continue on in session seven. And in session seven, we're going to focus in on Genesis two. Finally, made to we finally finally made it to the second chapter of Genesis. We're going to focus in on Genesis two verses one through one, two, and three. And we're going to see the creation of Something that is amazing, uh, in the pagan cultures, the pagans made, oh, a temple holy. Uh, the pagans might make a hill or a certain mountain holy. Or they might say, oh, these, uh, these vessels, these garments, these flowers are holy. What does God do? He says that time becomes holy. A 24-hour period. What's that all about? And on top of that, we know it's the creation of the Sabbath. We're going to find that the Sabbath, once we address biblical Hebrew, not the English, we're going to find that the Sabbath is not a day of rest. It's not a day to take a nap. It's not a day that God said you're going to rest from all of your work during the week. You need to have a time where you can relax, lay back, uh, rest your muscles in your mind. It's gotten, it's not, it's not that. And another thing we're going to do is, as we take a look at the English translation from the Hebrew, we get the impression that creation or God's work in creating everything is done 
basically on day six and on seventh day God rested does God need to rest but on top of that did creation stop on day six in other words nothing more is created there's nothing more to do hmm I'm gonna take a look at this in session seven because we're made in his image and maybe we're supposed to imitate God so we'll take a look at that in session seven as we continue the gospel according to Moses. Shalom.